Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, August 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor's task force on opioid addiction is recommending action to combat the challenges in treating the disease. Part of this that are going to have to be addressed by the legislature during the next session, but we're going to begin having conversations with key leadership to help bring them up to speed on why we feel like this is going to be necessary for us to do to help combat the epidemic. In our StoryCorps segment, a conversation about adjusting to life in the state in midst of the civil rights movement. And more Mississippi students are reaping the benefits of the free school lunch program. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi agencies are taking action to tackle a drug epidemic sweeping the state. The governor's opioid and heroin study task force recently released 41 recommendations to combat opioid abuse. In Mississippi, between 2013 and 2016, 481 drug overdose deaths involved opioids. The task force had area-specific subcommittees that included law enforcement, treatment, and recovery. Through a federal grant, the Mississippi Department of Mental Health has already begun training Department of Public Safety officers on how to use naloxone, a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. John Dowdy is director of the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, he served as chair of the task force. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about the law enforcement recommendations. I believe that we have set forth a, a comprehensive strategic plan uh, that is going to put Mississippi in, in, in the right direction in, ter- in terms of trying to combat the opioid crisis that we're facing. A couple of the key components of that plan include uh, limitations on opioid prescribing, uh, by the doctors, also increased usage of the prescription monitoring program by prescribers, which I think are two critical elements. It'll do a, a couple of things. Number one, uh, it'll cut back on people unnecessarily and having a greater potential of becoming opioid addicted. And two, by utilizing the PMP, it'll help doctors and dentists and other prescribers be more acutely aware of individuals who may be uh, in the practice of doctor shopping, which is simply going from doctor to doctor to try to get uh, more opioids. 
The recommendations, um, some were law enforcement related, some treatment and some medical providers. Right. Under the law enforcement, what do you think is critical? I think number one is giving our prosecutors and circuit judges a tool to be able to utilize a tougher sentencing structure on individuals who sell heroin and fentanyl that result in a person's death. We need that deterrent so people would maybe think twice about selling those two very deadly drugs because what we're seeing right now is the vast majority of drug overdoses in the state are being caused by a combination of heroin and fentanyl or just fentanyl uh, straight up by itself. So having that deterrent factor would be very significant. The other thing that I think is important in this particular part of the recommendations is the use of the ability for first responders to have Narcan or Naloxone, which is a reversal drug for opioid overdoses, not only for the protection of the officers for accidental exposure, but also when we come across victims who are in overdose status to be able to save somebody's life. And I think, you know, it's plain and simple that uh, everybody's life matters or nobody's life matters. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, ma'am. Joshua Horton is founder of Southern Recovery Advocacy. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier one of the insurance challenges with treatment. I was on the recovery subcommittee of the task force, and, and what we were trying to get across is the availability of treatment in Mississippi. We have lots of insurance-provided treatment that are you know, resort-style treatment facilities, but if you don't have insurance, you're not able to go to these entities. And if you're really in active addiction and you've been suffering from the disease for a while, the chances of you having good health care are almost next to none. You know, the crisis centers that we've got set up in rural areas of Mississippi are supposed to be taking in individuals that are in crisis from addiction, but the, the stipulation is they won't take you if you're actively on drugs, especially at some of the regional health care centers, they will not take you if you're actively using. And then they send you to a crisis center to detox, but the detoxes are not taking people without insurance. And Mississippi was one of the few states that did not expand Medicaid under Obamacare to handle substance abuse. And we're seeing a lot of the ramifications of that, especially for on the poor and underprivileged people that do not have access to health care. And it's costing us lives. Any of the recommendations that have been submitted, do they deal with these issues that you just raised? Crisis intervention centers that would really serve as a diversion center, if you would, for law enforcement and for the hospitals, because law enforcement is not equipped to deal with substance use disorder, and neither is the hospital in large. I mean, they they may be able to resuscitate you, but as far as dealing with the disease of addiction, they're not really equipped to handle that. They're not a mental health facility. They're not a detox. Instead of taking them to jail or to the ER, you take them to a crisis intervention center where you've got social workers, you've got medical staff that can detox and get these people plugged into some sort of treatment, whether that be outpatient or inpatient. We've got to do a better job of getting people immediate access to treatment because the disease of addiction is is a mental disorder as much as it is a physical allergy. So a lot of times the delusional thinking of going back to substance use, you'll have a real small window to get people into treatment. It's usually just a few hours where people, they call it a moment of clarity in recovery. You're willing to go get treatment. 
Well, if we're not willing to put people in treatment at that time, and a few days goes by and they go back to using after hitting their so-called bottom, they're back off to the races again, and, and you may not get another chance to get these people sober if we don't have facilities immediately available for these people to go to. Medical provider suggestions include reducing opioid prescriptions to a three-day supply with exceptions and requiring continuing education for medical providers. Dr. Claude Brunson is advisor to the vice chancellor at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He explains how accurate tracking of prescriptions will be handled through their program. For the most part, all of our faculty and all of our trainees who are in their residency program, except for interns, get their um, own DEA. Now, you have to have a permanent medical license to get your DEA number. Our interns, which are those um, physicians who are in their first year out of medical school, do not have a permanent license. They can't get their permanent license until they get finished with that first year. And so that would preclude them right now, based upon regulation that we have, from getting a DEA. That's where the issue is. Now, we do have a few people who are beyond their first year of training who right now do not have a permanent medical license and therefore not a DEA, but we've already begun the process of telling all of our folks beyond that first year of training that they need to get their permanent DEA, and that's just a small number of people. We are now looking at, with the DEA and the Board of Medical Licensure, as to whether or not there is a mechanism that we can use to get a DEA for interns. That might mean, that will certainly mean that we would have to change a regulation at the Board of Medical License that says that they can actually get a DEA without having a permanent uh, medical license. We're we're checking with the DEA now to see if there's any prohibition against that. Uh, And so far we have found that there may be a way that we can do that. And then that would cover those first-year physicians that are in training but who do not have a permanent medical license. Throughout this process, what did you find were some of your major concerns? One of my major concerns was, are we all going to be able to come together and get on the same page and we all agree to a set of standards that we will all comply with and have our providers comply with going forward? one of my main concerns was, are we going to be able to get the, the uh, Board of Medical Licensure, the Board of Nursing, um, the Veterinary Board, which, which they actually come on the Board of Medical Licensure, uh, the Pharmacy Board, and the Dental Board, which is where the prescribers are. Are we going to come together and we all agree that we're going to make our prescribers check um, the, uh, the database to see what drugs uh, these patients are on and if they have been doc- doctor shopping before we write a prescription. And then to also require, which was one of the sticking issue, that all of our providers who are writing these have a certain minimum number of uh, educational courses that they take on a yearly or biannual basis to make sure that they remain up to date on the latest prescribing and know which things to look out for so that we're that we can be more safe and more secure as we're prescribing these drugs. Because as you you know, in today's crisis that we have, most of these people started out from having legal prescription uh, opioids written for them. And as we've been tightening up on getting those and or as those 
cost on the street have been going up. These folks have switched over to going to heroin, which is uh, cheaper, but can also be more potent and more deadly. And that's where we come in with having to work with treatment centers and, and, and all those people to, to make sure we're addressing the treatment limb of it as they go from opioids from a prescription to street drugs. In terms of the cost, where do you see the biggest cost treatment? That's the part that's going to cost money, and that's the part the state is going to have to come to agreement in terms that they're going to have to fund this. Because us cutting people off who are addicted will not get us past the point. You still have an addicted person. If they're addicted to, to prescription opioids and we cut them off, they just go to the street version of drugs, which are more risk. Uh, they're at more risk for and uh, more uh, problems that they have. And, and you see the overdose deaths occurring with a lot of that also. So we've got to put more money into the treatment limb, and the state's going to have to do that. Dr. Claude Brunson with our Desiree Frazier. Task force members also say media campaigns, town halls, and online resources will begin right away. Coming up, how school meals could lead to a better academic performance. That's after our StoryCorps segment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Are you ready to leave the United States to work or volunteer? Have you thought about how you'll handle your finances overseas? Do you still have to pay income tax back home? On the next Money Talks, our guest will be Duncan McNichol, who will share his experiences and advice on living and working short-term and long-term outside of the U.S. We'll also take your personal finance questions. That's on Money Talks, today at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Dave and Nancy Teal moved to Mississippi as newlyweds in 1965. Dave had been a grad student at Harvard and wanted to teach at Tougaloo College. They've lived here ever since. In this conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour, Dave and Nancy talk about moving to Mississippi and about their reaction to the civil rights movement at the time. We would have some uncomfortable times, I would say, going into the community and maybe having to tell somebody that where our address was, especially when we lived on the Tougaloo campus or the Tougaloo community, because they sort of looked at you like, what are you doing there? Are you a civil rights activist? You know, mm-hmm. are you going to stir up something? And there were times, if you've seen Selma, you know about the diversity between, or not diversity isn't the right word, but the nonviolent plus the young, more active, angry people who that we're sort of going back and forth about how they should manage the changes that were happening in civil rights. So there certainly were times that people, speakers came on campus that were very angry, very, uh, you know, out front, up front about how... Mm-hmm. For example... Stokely Carmichael. Right. I, I Black can, power. Yeah, with Black power. That was certainly a very uncomfortable time. I had... One experience, when we went to take the test and get our driver's license from Mississippi, I got a a test which was all fill in the the blanks. And there was one question about where Highway Patrol had radio stations. And yeah, in what cities in the state? In what cities in Nine the state? Nine of them. <laughs> and, and I was supposed to write all those down. Well, I flunked that test. And when I got out of there, discovered that Dave had had a multiple choice test, which was considerably easier than 
what I was given. The second time I went back, I got the multiple choice trust. Which was strange, considering I was the one at Tougaloo. They should have given me the tough one, huh? After Meredith integrated Ole Miss, things changed a good bit, and a lot of the students that might have come to Tougaloo then were more likely to go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Southern. I think I've heard you say that the quality of the students generally was not as good because more of them took advantage of those bigger that, schools. Uh, yeah, I guess and that cheaper probably schools. <laughs> generally was true, but as I think about those 75 students starting in, ni- in 1970. I worked in the admissions office. I was trained as a dietitian in Boston, but when I came here, what I did in Boston, I was not allowed to do here. I made rounds with doctors and wrote in charts in Boston and in Jackson. I wasn't allowed to look in a patient's chart. You remember the time that you and somebody, I'm not even sure who, were staying in somebody's home at night in Madison County? Yeah, that was an interesting experience, I guess. I think it was the first semester that uh, we were in Mississippi. And at that time, there were a few families, especially a couple of families who lived out in the uh, countryside, sort of, who apparently were willing to send their young children, ages between, say, 6 and 10, to a school that was nearer than the school they otherwise would go to, but it was all white. And the question was, would their kids be safe? How would they be treated at the school? And and so on. Two things about this I remember. One family had a, a, a son who was, and remember this was in 1965, this little boy w- went to the school where the class was otherwise all white. And the story I heard was that someone who was just really mean poured orange juice on his head and then proceeded to put sand on top of that. There were, I guess, worse things were feared might happen. And so one concern was that, I guess they sometimes were referred to as night riders, guys in cars after dark would uh, drive around and cause problems. One of these families in the the county just north of uh, where the college is, it was a family that sent their children to a school in this situation. I remember being there in that family's house with another Tougaloo faculty member after dark, and we were sitting on the floor in the living room, and there was a, a gun on the floor near us. And I've never shot a gun, and I didn't want to then, and I'm not sure... <laughs> what I would have done, but we were there to listen for the sound of tires on the gravel driveway outside because we were afraid a Molotov cocktail would come through the window into the house. It never did. We never heard the car that we were afraid of, but that kind of thing did happen. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Education officials are closing the gap between students who are eligible and those who actually receive free or reduced lunch. The Mississippi Department of Education worked with the State Department of Human Services to ensure that all students whose family receive SNAP benefits are now signed up to receive free lunch. MDE now has a new process to ensure that all that all students who receive food stamps or SNAP are placed on that free lunch roster. Scott Clements is director of the MDE Office of Child Nutrition. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware how the program has changed. For the National School Lunch Program, students who are eligible for special nutrition assistance programs are automatically eligible for free meals. In years past, we get a file from the Department of Human Services we then sorted that file and provided the districts with the names of students in their in their county that were eligible for SNAP so they could be declared uh, eligible for uh, free meals. And that process is referred to as direct certification. Um, what we found was that the districts were doing a pretty good job with it, but they weren't meeting this 95% threshold, which is the goal of all the states to meet. Uh, we could certify the districts were, were definitely getting around 80% of the kids. We believe they were getting closer to 92% of the children, but there was still a gap there. So what we did in Mississippi uh, to, one, and probably most importantly, reach more children who were eligible for free meals, but also to ease the administrative burden on the districts and to make the process better, we started matching the staff roles to the Mississippi Student Information System. So what we can do is on our end go ahead and tell those districts of the students who are enrolled uh, in their district, in their schools, these students are eligible for free meals. They can import that information into their point-of-sale software, and the process is really completed for them before you know, they don't have to do really very much on their end at all. We have a small number of students who are, were not able to match for whatever reason. You know, maybe there's a misspelling or a transposition of a number, and they're able to match that smaller number now. But we've done the bulk of the work on our end. How does this go alongside the eligible recipients who were applying to receive free or reduced? What's happened is now the parents no longer have to even turn in an application uh, for free meals for those students. The district already knows because the match has taken place. So if you get in a position where the parents, for whatever reason, don't return the the, uh, application, or you get in a, a position, particularly with older students, where maybe... They don't want to return the application because they fear there's some type of stigma with free meals. The match is already made, and there's so there has to be no action really on the parents or the child's part. And uh, you know they're already they're already receiving the free meals. With this upcoming school year, how many more Mississippi students are going to now be able to receive these free meals? We're probably looking in the neighborhood of twenty, thirty, even thirty thousand students who may not have received. Uh, benefits in the past will now be eligible for free meals. Students who may not receive SNAP but are still low income, they can still go through the traditional application route? Correct. Low income families who did not receive SNAP can fill out a paper application and in many cases an online application with districts. They then use the income scale to determine their eligibility and some of those students will be free and and a fair number of those students will be reduced also. Why is it important for students to have access to free or reduced meals during school hours? It's terribly important. This is a, it's for a couple of reasons. One, it's a vulnerable population. You're talking about uh, children and we want to make sure 
that they get the proper nutrition. But the other piece, and this is where it ties so closely with the other goals of the Department of Education, are that these students, if they're not fed, they don't achieve in school. So not only are we meeting their very fundamental needs of nutrition, but we're also helping them achieve in school and perform better. Scott Clements is the director of the Office of Child Nutrition with the Mississippi Department of Education. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. Regina Duxworth is the child nutrition director for the Clinton Public School District. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware school meals are important for academic success. In Mississippi, we're on the bottom of a lot of lists and, uh, you know, our the poverty here in Mississippi is is pretty high. Uh, we have a lot of parents who cannot afford to pay for meals, and we want children to have uh, nourishing meals. It's important for students to eat uh, breakfast and lunch each day. Hungry children cannot learn in the classroom. If they're hungry, then they're not concentrating on what the teachers are trying to teach them. It's important for them to eat. So, you know, if they cannot afford a full-price meal, then we encourage parents to uh, fill out a free reduced application so that their child can have meals each day. Regina Duxworth for Clinton Public School District, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.org.